0: church. I hope if you have your Bibles with you, you'll begin making your way over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be picking up this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All right. And if you hear some Beating and banging, I think they're doing construction right there. And so, let's pray they don't start the skill saw, as they did during Sunday school. All right, so uh, just be aware of that. Before we jump into the text, let me just pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll begin with this. Father, I do thank you again for this morning that you've given us. You give us life and breath and all things. And Lord, I just pray over our time together, Lord, as we come under your word. I pray that we would, Lord, I. I say engage it, but Lord, I pray that your word would engage our hearts. Lord, that by your spirit you would be so kind, so sweet to us as to like a surgeon with a scalpel cuts away things that are harmful and disastrous. Lord, I pray that by the sword of your spirit through your word that you might remove sin from our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would draw out things that need to be addressed. So Father, as we jump into this text this morning, there's a particular weightiness about it, and I know it probably touches many of us very closely. And so, Father, I just pray for a balance and foremost, Lord, that I might be faithful to your word and speak it in love. And so, Father, I pray that you would do these things this morning. Lord, we love you. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we pick up here, last week, what we had begun to see in chapter 5 is Paul beginning to address some other issues within the church at Corinth. It wasn't just favoritism. There were other things that had been reported. Last week we saw a, a grievous sexual sin that had taken place in the life of the church. And one of the one of the ironies with this week is last week we saw the church's unwillingness to judge an individual who had committed this wrong. And as we move into this text today, we see they're quick to judge or at least they desire judgment with other believers. They're just unwilling to do it themselves, and so they go outside the church. And so they're seeking judgment from unbelievers, from civil magistrates. And so it may feel a little disconnected, but the reality is Paul is is tracking right along the same themes here as he gets into chapter six. And so what I'd like to do is, is just read the text for us to begin picking up in verse one. And we're gonna go, Lord willing, through verse 11 this morning. So we'll break chapter six into and, and look at the other part next week. But let me pick up here in verse 1, and I'll read, and then we'll begin to unpack this a little at a time. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law court dealings with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor rivals, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let me pray for us again. Father, again, I pray over this word. I trust that it will never return void. It will always accomplish exactly what you set forth for it to accomplish. So, Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin here in chapter 6, we see the situation Paul has enlightened us to. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, notice there's an indignation in Paul's tone as he's writing this. It's as though he's saying, how dare you do such a thing? But notice where the emphasis is not. Look, look how he begins with saying, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, he's, he's not indignant about the fact that they have issues. In fact, it's, it's assumed, and we know this, we recognize this, if, if you get a community together, if you get believers even together, though we are redeemed, though we're being sanctified, you get us together long enough, we're going to have some issues. That's, that's going to happen. People are going to say things that are inappropriate or ridiculous, and we have to repent and resolve those things. And it, it's normal. It's assumed that the community of faith is going to have some problems along the way. All right. That, that's not where Paul has this issue here. It's not simply that they have issue against one another. What Paul is indignant at is the manner in which they go about resolving these issues how they're addressing this. He's saying, how dare you go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? They're taking one another to court. Now, it's not as though, don't don't mishear this, let me me give us a little context as we approach this text. It's not as though Paul is inherently anti-government, it's not as though he's anti-judiciary. That's not the case. If we were to go over to Romans chapter 13, we actually see Paul there speaking of his view on government, how government is God-ordained. It's something that, that he ordains to look out for the good of the citizens. They also execute justice and judgment upon the wicked. So he he doesn't have a problem with government or judiciary. That's, that's not the case. Rather, what he's pointing out here is this low level of Courts, the civil courts. There's a distinction here. You you see it in the text, even in verse two, when he says, "Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts?" He's even going to say in a a couple of verses, uh, a couple of verses down, matters of this life. So, in the Roman system, much like what we have, I know we have this in the U.S. I'm not sure how it operates here in, in Brazil, but there's a criminal court and then there's a civil court. And within the Roman Empire their criminal court was known to be rather just. It was relatively objective and fair. However, that could not be said of their civil courts. The civil courts operated very much on a quid pro quo kind of system. You help me, I help you. Whoever has the most money in the lawsuit is going to get the most favorable outcome in the verdict because they were able to pay off magistrates, various people. That, that was very much the system in the Roman Empire, in Corinth in particular. And so it was a, a means by which people used to elevate their status, to accomplish their purposes. That's how they used the courts. They used and abused the court system in this way. And Paul is indignant because this is happening within the church. And he's saying it shouldn't. There are certain things that should be dealt with among the body. And you don't have to go outside to have these things resolved. Again, he's not saying there's never a time for court intervention or jurisdiction. Those kind of things. He's not saying that. But rather, in these issues and matters of this life, the low-level civil courts, you should be able to deal with this. Now, lest we think this is just something reserved for the New Testament church in Corinth Lest we think this is not relevant to us today. I want to read a quote for us. And this is, now granted this is uh, a quote from a U.S. Chief Justice. And so I realize that's this is an observation from the U.S. judicial system. And I know we have people from all over. But I trust that if this is true there, it's probably true universally. Okay, and so I just want to read this. Um, this is coming from uh, Warren Berger who was a Chief Justice back in the 80s. He said this. He said, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. He added, remedies for personal wrongs that were once considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. That is a profound observation from an individual within the judicial system in America. He's not a commentator. He's not a theologian. That's just someone making an observation that... The failure of the church in our day to look at these kind of issues, to understand how to resolve conflict in our midst has resulted in a, an overwhelming burden in the judicial systems of the lands in which we live. And the world is picking up on it. They see that. I think that's profound. And that's why Paul here is indignant over this issue. Now... Where does that indignation lie? Of course we know it's this believer going before the unbeliever. This tension, he says the unrighteous and the saints, he's going to say the believer and the brethren, or excuse me, the, the unbeliever and the brethren later on. That's how he's going to lay it out. But where does this reside? What what theologically, where is this grounded? Look with me in verses two through four. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you. Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law court dealings with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Paul's indignation here is rooted in his understanding of the church in the age that is to come. There, this eschatological reality that the believer, the church, in the age that is to come, will judge. That the church will rule and reign in a sense. will be given a measure of authority over the world. And so Paul is saying based on that reality, based on who we are in the age that is to come, it has a profound impact on how we live today. That, that's where he's rooting this. Now, I just want to zoom out for a second because I think this is really helpful what Paul's doing. Paul, what I love about him is he's not someone who disconnects theology, doctrine from practical living. We have a tendency to do that, right? We acquire all this head knowledge and we can, you know, teach a Sunday school class or answer quizzes or all these kind of things. But we have a tendency to put our theology and doctrines and Conviction's up on a shelf here, right? And it's disconnected from the world in which we live. And Paul doesn't do that. So what is Paul doing here? He, he doesn't just go to a text and say, okay, that, he doesn't pull some Old Testament text that says thou shalt not sue your neighbor. He doesn't do that. What's he doing? He's rooting this in, this eschatological reality. He's applying theology. He's not rewriting or writing an inspired, how do I say this? a a newly inspired don't sue your neighbor, right? He's pulling from this reality and applying this theological truth of who He is in Christ and who the church is in Christ and applying it to the way in which they live. Church, that's what we ought to do. You're going to run into 10,000 things in the course of your day that the Bible does not explicitly say, do this, don't do this. And you have to make a choice. You have to decide, well, how do I go in this way? What what should I do? We ought to do what Paul's doing here. He's pulling from this biblical reality and applying it to his life. A biblical worldview. And it impacts everything he does. It impacts the way this church operates in Corinth. The fact that they don't sue one another. Why is that? Because of who they are in Christ. Church, we ought to think that way. We ought to see things through a a lens of biblical reality. We don't just disconnect our theology and put it up on a shelf and never touch it or only touch it on Sundays. Now, let's let's keep moving here as we walk through this text. Look with me in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you. You have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now in chapter 4, Paul had said, I'm not saying this to your shame. I'm not trying to shame you. That's not my purpose. Here in chapter 6, he's saying this is already to your shame. It's already happened. They've already brought one another to court. They've done it in the public forum because that's how it happened in Corinth before the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat. They're in the middle of town in the open air for everyone to see. And so it's to the shame of these believers that are doing this, it's to the shame of the church. It says, you, it's already a defeat for you that you do this. I, I couldn't help but think this week as, as I spent time in this, When we were in the States, we we came from, I think it's the largest Protestant denomination in the US. And a couple of years ago, the Convention of Churches decided to um, have a report done, a study that would look into potential misconduct that had taken place in, in some of the churches. And last year, this study came forth. And the report named names, it was very, transparent. And one of the individuals named was a former president of the convention and so that made a a lot of stir and rightly so. Now what happened in the days that followed this individual went under the authority of some other pastors to seek restoration to ministry. Did that for a sustained amount of time. And back at the beginning of this year these other pastors, I believe there were four that had been working with this individual, said, hey, he's ready to be restored to ministry. We want to see him come back to public ministry and do so in this way. I don't remember the exact amount of time, but but with, within a very short amount of time following their statement, this individual filed a lawsuit against the convention of churches, against the committee, against the, the group that had done this report, a defamation lawsuit seeking damages for law speaking engagements, all these things. What kind of shame do you think that brings? What, what do you think the world thought when they heard about that? Was, was there shame that had been brought as a result of everything that had taken place? Yeah, absolutely. But how much more so in this? And, and the world would look back and say, why would we want to be a part of this? Why would we want to be a part of this so-called church? They're no different than the rest of us. Suing one another. Is it not better to... How does he say it in verse 7? Rather not be defrauded? Rather not be wronged? Rather not, as as this chief justice said, lay down your entitlements as citizens to sue to do these things? Is it better to not do so instead What does he say in verse 8? To the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. Church, is there any wonder why the outside world looks at the church and says, I don't want to be a part of that? The church is intended to be an alternate community that looks different from the world around it. And when we operate the way the rest of the world operates, it destroys that testimony. People look and say, what? They don't do anything any different. We're to be a peculiar people. function in a different way now look where he goes from here as he gets to verses 9 10 and 11 he's going to invert his perspective here remember verses 2 through 4 I said that that Paul was saying our future reality who we are in Christ who we will be in the age that is to come impacts the way we live now right What he's going to say here now in verses 9 and following is the way in which we live now indicates our future reality. So he's hitting both perspectives, both sides of this. So early, he says, the future reality, who you are in Christ, impacts the way you live. Now he's saying the way in which you live indicates that future reality. He says, or do you not know, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom. Unrighteousness equates to no inheritance. And then he says, I think, the, the maybe the four most clarifying words in this text, do not be deceived. The reality is the church at Corinth had been deceived. They had bought into this lie that how they live in the present has no impact on the future. They were deceived. Consider this for just a moment. I love potato chips, all right? That's this it is what it is. And I know I know some of you love potato chips as well, all right? We've had conversations about this. But I've yet to find what was my favorite potato chip in the States here in Brazil. I don't know if they sell it. Um, I may have to import it. I don't know how this is gonna work. But anyways, it it was a chip that was sweet and spicy jalapeno, kettle chips, okay? And so it's just hot enough that when you eat it, you have to eat more so your mouth doesn't catch on fire, you know? It's one of those kind of things. There's a little bit of sweetness there. And, And this past week, I actually looked up the nutritional value As I was preparing for this, you can do that online. You can look up nutritional value for chips. And I was impressed because it's not as bad as I thought, right? I'm like, okay, it's it's okay. But even if it's not terribly bad for you, the serving size was only 13 chips. I can't eat 13 chips. You put a bag of chips in front of me, I'm going to eat the whole bag. That's just what it is, right? Now, I know the result of eating a bag of chips every day. What is that going to be? Well, first of all, I'm going to have terrible indigestion. That's just going to happen, especially with the sweet and spicy. Then my blood pressure is probably going to go up. Cholesterol is going to be bad. My pants probably won't fit as well as they once did. Numerous things, okay? Health issues will ensue. I know that. I know you can't eat a bag of chips every day. That's not good. But what do I so often do? Or what did I often do in the States? Even in light of that knowledge, went to the store and bought another bag of chips, right? Because evidently in my heart, there was a disconnect from my head. I had convinced myself, though I had all this knowledge, well, that's not really going to happen. I was deceived. I was deceived into thinking, you know, that's that's not going to happen. It's really not that bad for me, and so I kept eating. That's why I think Paul says. He says it three times here. If this statement sounds familiar, it's because he said it, Numerous times before. Or do you not know? Did they know? Well, yeah, they had the intellectual knowledge. But they had bought into this lie that they could persist in their unrighteousness and it would have no bearing on their future. They bought into that. So though they had the head knowledge, it was disconnected from their actual conviction and what they did. So it is here. In church, so it is with so many of us. We, We buy into... I really won't have judgment for this. I really can do this. I really can get by with this. It's really not that big of an issue and we convince ourselves. Church, we're so often deceived. I think that's in part why he does this. The way that he continues on in verse 9 and 10, what is he doing? He's saying the exact same thing that he says at the beginning of verse 9. But he's unpacking unrighteousness for what that means. Notice he had said, or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Don't be deceived. The next thing he says, he unpacks this unrighteousness. What does that mean? He says it in 10 ways, 10 identities here of unrighteousness. He says neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor violers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Same statement. He's just opening it up. He's in a sense, I think, pulling back the scales on their spiritual eyes so as to reveal These characteristics of unrighteousness. And he's saying you you can't live and persist in this and think that you're going to inherit the kingdom. That's not how it works. You're deceived. It doesn't work that way. Now, I'm so grateful and thankful that Paul doesn't simply say verses 9 and 10 and leave it as though here's condemnation apart from redemption. Because look what he says. Look how he keeps going here in verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The reality is that many within this church in Corinth had dealt with these very sins. These very identities. These, These aren't just individual sins laid out. Notice the manner in which he states them. It's an identity. Their identity was bound up in these sins, in this lifestyle. And he's saying, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. A transformation took place. They became new in Christ. Even at the very beginning, verse 1, what does He remind them that they are? Saints. They're set apart. They're distinct. And that's where He ends here in verse 11. That you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. He's, He's made it where you can stand before God as holy and clean and blameless when you receive the gift of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of that. And I'm so thankful for that because as we look at this list, I'd venture to say most of us, all of us probably, have fallen into one of those 10 categories. And we probably today still know many people that are there in that place, in those identities in verses 9 and 10, and they've not yet seen 11. That ought to stir us. Now... Let me say this. Does the fact that we become believers, you come to faith, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, does that therefore mean you now no longer struggle with some of these former identities? That let's say you're a drunkard and you come to faith, you no longer deal with alcoholism at all? Is that what that means? Well, maybe. The Lord could do that. He, he could choose to free you in the moment you come to faith that you no longer desire alcohol. That might happen. Maybe. But probably not. You're probably still going to deal with that desire. You're still going to deal with that struggle. Not sure what's going on with the lights there, but if we can kill the blue one that's flashing, I'd be okay with that. Like a strobe. You guys know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual darkness, principalities, or spiritual warfare? That light's probably got something spiritual going on right now, all right? (laughs) Like, God wants you to hear something today and the enemy doesn't like it, all right? So are we free from that sin forever after we come to faith? Probably not, you're probably gonna deal with that. I like what Paul says. Let's jump over into Romans for just a moment. This is Romans chapter 7. If I can get there. Romans chapter 7, Paul is speaking of his newness in Christ. He's come to faith. He's a believer. He's been transformed. He's experienced the new birth. And what Paul realizes is though he is a new creation in Christ, there's still a presence of that old self there. He says it this way in verse 21 of chapter 7. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur that the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law. What's he describing? He's talking about a a warfare within himself, within the life of the believer. You come to faith and this new creation then is in conflict with this old sinful self. And so there's this war that's being waged day in and day out. That's what sanctification is. It's this process whereby the, the new self is daily putting to death the old self. And one day at the end of this life, That old self will be totally done away with and will be made new and perfect in Christ. In perfection. We're not perfect on this side of eternity. We're redeemed. We're being sanctified. We're growing in Christ-likeness, but we're not perfect. You know that. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To walk the path of obedience as imperfect as we may do it. You're waging war with that old self. Now what does that look like? I mentioned the the drunkard just a moment ago. What does that look like for someone who's dealt with alcoholism? Maybe that means after you come to faith, you go home and you pour out every bit of alcohol that's in your house. That's waging war. Maybe it means you start looking for a new apartment because right across the street from where you live is the bar that you used to go get drunk in every night. And you don't want to face that anymore. So you go look for a new apartment. Maybe it means you change all the restaurants that you go to because you used to go to restaurants that only had open bars beside the tables. You... You wage war against the old sinful flesh. That that's what it means to be a, a believer. I think we've bought in so often to this lie that we come to faith and suddenly we're we're free from all these old fleshly desires. And it's easy peasy. Life life is so easy now. We go forth and everything's perfect. And warfare is hard. It, it's a struggle, as as my brother mentioned just a moment ago. In church, we ought to engage in that struggle. We fight. We pursue holiness and godliness. And we're able to do that because of the Spirit which resides in us. The Spirit of the living God. That's how we do this. It's it's just like what we read last week. If we were to go back to chapter 5, when Paul says in verse 7, he says, Clean out the old lump, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened just as you are. You've been made new in Christ. Therefore, clean out the old sin. Our lives should look different. Church, I want to just give us three exhortations with this text. And I'm sure there's more. But I want to exhort us in this way. First of all, Maybe this morning God by his Holy Spirit has unveiled your eyes to a a deception in your life. Maybe you're being deceived into thinking something's okay and it's really not. And this morning you realize that. You need to repent of that this morning. I want to encourage you to do so. You you can repent as, as right now, in this moment. You can repent as the worship team comes up in just a moment and begins to play. You can do that in your seat. You know what, I, I want to encourage you to do something further. Because I, I think God may use this in a powerful way to, to help in resolving this deception and in pursuing the path of holiness. I, I want to encourage you. If, if God's put something on your heart that you need to confess, you need to repent of. To my knowledge, at least since I've been here, we've, we've used this stage just as a stage. Not, not as an altar per se. And God can engage your heart where you are just as easily as He can right here. But, but I think it might God might do something in your life if you choose to come up here as they begin to play and deal with what God's put on your heart. I think He might use this to solidify something in your life. And so I want to encourage you to do that. To come up here and do business with God at the altar. I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you're engaged daily in this work of sanctification and you sense the warfare. You sense the hardship and you're, and you're pressing on. I just want to encourage you, brother or sister. Keep on. Don't grow weary and well-doing. You keep on. Stay faithful in the battle. There's reward for your labor. There is an inheritance to those who endure. Keep on. I want to encourage you. Keep doing that. And then lastly, this. Maybe you're facing a situation in your life and you don't know which way to go. You don't know any scripture that specifically says, don't do this, do this, and you just don't know how to operate. Maybe this morning you need to begin pulling from that shelf of biblical reality. And you just need to begin to pray and ask God, Lord, enlighten me to how I'm supposed to operate in light of who I am in Christ, my identity, the biblical reality. How, how am I supposed to proceed in this? How do I walk, walk the path of obedience? Let me encourage you to do that. I, I would say a good portion of what we pray for out here in this little patio area revolves around that very thing. Applying biblical reality. How do I move forward? What do I do in this situation? And so I want to encourage you. There's going to be people willing and very happy to pray with you. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You're dealing with, how do I deal with this situation? We'd love to pray with you. Okay, Feel free to do that. I want to go ahead and pray for us now. And the guys are going to come up and uh, begin to play. You be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. All right, Let me pray. Father, I do... Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, that it is sharp. Lord, just as I prayed earlier, I pray that it would not cut so as to kill, but rather so as to heal. Lord, that you might remove sin from us. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to inspect our hearts faithfully this morning to to judge rightly ourselves to see if there is any sin in us. And Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit You would give us spiritual eyes to see if there's something that we're so deceived about and so blind to. Lord, make that clear. Father, again, I I thank You and I pray that we might be found faithful. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.